Oh, it happened again. What happened again? Ah, uh, you know, reality broke. We've ended up in a featureless void. You come from a reality in which Andy Bashago never became president. What do you mean he never became president? What do you mean, what do you mean he never became president? Andy Bashago is the current lifetime president of the world. He won the 2016 election in a landslide. He recently made peace with the indigenous life forms on Mars. He is kind of the best person ever. I mean, we have time machines now, and those jetpacks from the 80s, although they are pretty dangerous. Yeah, that's... it's the world I live in too. Normally when this shit happens, we turn out to be star-crossed lovers or something from different versions of reality. You mean like the world don't move to the beat of just one drum? What might be right for you may not be right for some. Okay, well, yeah, it's definitely you. Um, it does present a special problem. How so? Well, the last time this happened to me, or, or you, or both of us, but not at the same... Sorry, is my nose bleeding? No more than usual. Please, do continue. Yeah, well, uh, the last time this happened, we, and by we, I mean me and the other you, or you and the other... Are you sure my nose isn't just hemorrhaging brain matter? It's a bit gunky, but it's a season for gunk. Have you tried antihistamines? Yeah. Anyway, the last time we got thrown into this void, we had to record a classic-themed episode in order to get us back to our respective realities, except this time we're both from the same reality, so... So how do we get back? Precisely. Hmm. So last time this happened to me, we started off with the old face. Same. So... Maybe that's it. Maybe we just need to play that theme and the rest will just sort itself out? It's worth a shot. Theme? Theme! Well, that's not alarming at all. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, starring Dr. M.R.X. Dentith and featuring Josh Addison as The Interlocutor. And welcome to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. I am Josh Edison, and sitting next to me, they just took a DNA test. Turns out they're one hundred percent of that bitch. It's Doctor M R X Dentith. Oh, classic beginning. Got, yeah. Classic lyricisms. Yeah, well, you warned me last time, so I had one ready. Um, so, what have we talked about in these little episodes from the can? We've talked about what's a conspiracy. We've talked about what isn't a conspiracy. What else have we talked about? So, what conspiracy, what the, conspiracy uh, theory... What the hell was the second one? No, no, the first one first was... first one was definition what? of a conspiracy. The second one is definition of a conspiracy, oh, conspiracy theory. conspiracy theory, right. So now, now that we've sorted that out, we've got... So the, the other important thing we need to talk about is evidence. We do. Because evidence evidence comes up a lot. Theory, it does. And often... Evidence is taken to be the rationale as to why we shouldn't believe conspiracy Ooh. theories in the first place, because a general tendency you find in the academic literature on conspiracy theory, and also in the sceptical literature on conspiracy theory, is that conspiracy theorists use evidence badly. They use evidence in a haphazard fashion. They use evidence that most normal people wouldn't consider to be good evidence in the first place. And so because of the evidential practices of conspiracy theorists, we should basically not believe conspiracy theories. Now, my argument, which is expressed in the article Evidence and Cons... No, sorry. Conspiracy theories according to the evidence. The initial version was called Evidence and Conspiracy Theories, but went for a snappier title, Conspiracy Theories According to the Evidence. Mm, that's which snappy. appears in the journal Synthase, basically argues that 
We have a double standard when it comes to evidence and conspiracy theories, and that double standard is the kind of evidence that we think conspiracy theorists use is often used against conspiracy theories in an unproblematic way. So basically, we ping conspiracy theorists for using evidence badly, but we don't recognize the bad use of evidence against conspiracy theories. And conversely, we treat evidence when it's put forward for conspiracy theories as being prima facie bad, even if the same kind of evidence is being used to show a conspiracy theory is bad. And we don't go, oh, but that must be bad as well. Mm. So it's just double standards all the way up and down the ziggurat. Although the double standard, it does, it does come from the other direction as well, from what you might call the conspiracists or whatever, the people who are offering up unwarranted conspiracy, conspiracy theories. theorists. Um, you get the idea that, we see it a lot, sort of the, the uh, crops up with the 9-11 ones where you have um, people will, will pick at one tiny little bit of, you know, will, will, will um, scrutinise a, a theory in minute detail, pick out one tiny little bit of evidence, whether it's traces of iron found in, in you know, the, the, the wreckage of the Twin Towers or something, and say, there, yeah, look, this invalidates their entire official theory, therefore we can use our, cons our, our uh, not candidate, opposing conspiracy theory, um, and yet never scrutinise their own theories to the level of detail that they do the official ones. It's so true. It goes, I mean, it goes both ways. I think, in the kind of rivalry you get between one kind of explanation and another, you will get a lot of double standards or people going, I'm using this thing, it's absolutely fine, but if you use the same thing against me, that's bad. But normally it's taken that conspiracy theories are prima facie false, mm. and one of the rationales behind that is the use of evidence. My argument is actually the use of evidence is fine. There's nothing wrong yeah. with it. Well, certainly, I mean, coming from the particularist viewpoint that we talked about in what must have been the last one of these episodes, if, if you're going to say that whether or not a conspiracy theory is warranted is to be evaluated for each particular one based on the merits of its evidence, then you'd better have a good theory about it. The evidence. Indeed, and that's what we're going mm. to talk about in this episode. So I mean, we're not. We, we, I remember we did an episode on about evidence a long, long time ago, and we sort of went through the sort of species of evidence, things like sort of testimonial evidence and and um, hominid evidence, all that um, sort of stuff. Ecathathian evidence, mm. and of course the rare cephalopod evidence. Indeed, uh, circumstantial evidence. Putting, pointing out that the the, uh, the idea that uh, literally a smoking gun, which is often taken to be proof positive of something, is in fact itself circumstantial evidence. If you see someone holding a smoking gun, that doesn't prove that they just shot someone. It's anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, but no, I think I think this time we want to talk more about how evidence is used rather than Indeed. classifying different kinds of evidence. So, so how is it used well slash badly? So. Normally what we're dealing with when it comes to evidence is actually looking at what we might call selective evidence. So every time you put forward an explanation for any kind of phenomena, because that's also classic, oh, it is, yes. you have to basically select which bits of evidence you're going to present. So normally there's a lot more evidence per se than evidence which is actually salient towards the kind of explanation you're trying to present. Uh, so a nice example of this is, JFK was wearing socks the day he died. I it's probably completely irrelevant as to what colour his socks are. So, all well, socks were. I mean, he, was he cremated? You know, he, was, he was 
buried. So JFK is probably still wearing socks now. Quite possibly. That's an I interesting thought. What color are JFK's socks? Is it relevant? Well, precisely. That's the question. So JFK was wearing socks the day he died. It probably doesn't matter what color those socks are. They have no role whatsoever in the specific explanation for Kennedy's assassination. However, if you were to elucidate all of the evidence at the time of his death, that's going to include whether his his zip was done up or undone on his pants, the color of his socks, the way he had tied his shoelaces, and, and the like. But we take it that that evidence is not salient towards the explanation, so we remove it from our accounting of the explanation. There's a common joke you get in philosophy courses talking about explanations, which is that Technically, if you want a fulsome explanation of what's going on here, let's go all the way back to a few seconds after the Big Bang. Mm. And technically, that would be the most fulsome explanation of anything. Start from the very beginning. But no one really wants to wander through 16 billion years of history to explain why it is that when I release between my thumb and forefinger a pen, it's going to fall towards the ground. Mm. So normally, we have to select evidence. And, of course, you can engage in evidence selection in a good way, and you can engage in evidence selection in a bad way. Now, the reason why we select evidence is that we want to show that some particular explanation of an event is warranted. The worry about evidence selection is that you can make an explanation look warranted if you remove certain salient parts of the evidential pool in your accounting or make prominent irrelevant parts of the evidential pool and say they are actually directly salient to the explanation you're trying to present. Mm. Now, if we are recording this particular episode just after recording the episode uh, about the Charles Manson CIA conspiracy theories. I have no idea when, how far it's, how long it's been since we last actually aired that one by the time this one goes out. Um, but if you recall, we talked about the fact that, um, that Mr. journalist Ted O'Neill had um, written a book about the Charles Manson family and all of them. Um, and we said at the time that he tells a good story, uh, but he does it on some fairly select bits of evidence. The fact that Charles Manson seemed to get away with, um, with, with sort of numerous parole violations and the fact that his manipulation with heavy usage of LSD of his cult followers seemed quite similar to what the CIA was doing with MKUltra at the time. And he sort of takes these, these bits of evidence and sticks them together and manages to come up with quite a convincing narrative to suggest that possibly there were figures in the government who were looking out for Manson in some way or other. But I remember at the time... We sort of said, you know, it's a good story, but is it based on selective evidence? Yeah, and the thing is, we use evidence selection naturally all the time. But we have to. Yeah, Yeah, you, you, you have to. When you're trying to explain something, you are selecting evidence to try and get your point across. And we do that with respect to the type of person we're talking to. If you're trying to explain something to a child... You will select certain types of evidence to be more prominent than you would do explaining the same event to a nuclear physicist, even if your child is a nuclear physicist mm. because they're really, yeah, really precocious. Mm. So we we are always selecting evidence when we're engaging in any kind of explanatory practice. The worry is whether we're doing it with a good principle or a bad principle. And that's the worry that many skeptics of conspiracy theory have 
is that conspiracy theorists are engaging in illegitimate selection of evidence. So they'll go, well, you know, these 9-11 truthers, they, you know, they, they keep on selecting bits of evidence which seems like, you know, low probability yield of their explanation being true, but they choose these really small anomalies and then they emphasize them in their accounts whilst completely ignoring all the evidence that works against that particular interpretation. So they've selectively curated the pool of evidence to make their claim was an inside job look likely, even if you look at the wider claims in the evidential pool, which shows that actually the outside job is the most likely explanation of the event. Mm. And indeed, referring back to another episode that at time of recording we recorded not too long ago, um, there was the discussion around the autopsy of Jeffrey Epstein, where uh, another for former medical examiner or something like that had, had looked at the autopsy results and suggested that they were more likely uh, contra the ruling of the autopsy, which is that his death was a result of suicide. He said it looked more like a homicide pointing to a couple of details like a fracture of the hyoid bone and, and uh, burst capillaries around the eyes or something. And the um, reply to that from the medical examiner who actually performed the autopsy was, you can't just take out single bits of information. You have to look at the the full picture when it comes to an autopsy. Um, and so that basically seems to what we're talking about there. This guy was concentrating, was selecting specific bits of evidence to say this fits this particular thesis. And the reply was, well, no, you've just selected a couple of ones that suit your theory, but you can't do that when you're talking about an autopsy. You have to take all the evidence of the whole affair. Which gets us very nicely into a particular form of evidence selection, which Brian Keeley, friend of the show and just friend in general, talks about with respect to errant data. Mm. Now, there are two forms of errant data. There is data which is errant such that it's unaccounted for by the explanation. And then there's data which is contradictory to some explanation. So some evidence is always going to be errant to a particular explanation, or at least we normally take it to be to be errant. So, for example, going back to JFK and his socks, presumably the colour of the socks is either unaccounted for by the explanation in question, because no one cares what sock colours he had, or it's going to end up being contradictory. The official story says that Kennedy was wearing red socks, but we know from the autopsy report that Kennedy was actually wearing blue socks. That data's unaccounted for. Why is that? And if data is merely unaccounted for, so it just doesn't feature in the explanation, then you need to have some kind of principles to why it hasn't been mentioned. But normally the principle is, it's just not salient. No one cares what the color of JFK's socks were. If the data's contradictory, i.e. one explanation mentions it and the other one denies its existence, then you need to come up with some explanation as to why the contradiction exists. And the prominent story of this in the conspiracy theory literature is the invasion of Iraq in 2003 to find those pesky weapons of mass destruction, which I believe they still haven't found. Although, by the, time, it was by the time of recording, maybe Ooh. between now and when this episode goes out, maybe they've finally found those WMDs that justified the invasion of Iraq back in 2003. I mean, it's been 16 years and they still haven't found them. I don't have high hopes, but you never know. Yeah. Now, 
that was a story filled with contradictory data because you had the official theory coming out from the US and the UK that the Saddam Hussein regime was definitely producing weapons of mass destruction. And then you had the UN weapons inspectors who were going, there's definitely no evidence the project is active at this time. It was active back in the previous Gulf War and for a few years afterwards, but they've stopped. We've got no evidence to believe they're engaging in this activity at all. Two rival explanatory hypotheses, both of which contradict the other. And thus what you really want is for there to be some explanation as to why that contradiction exists. And that explanation, to a large extent, is going to go, well, one of these theories is probably filled with disinformation. Mm. Um, just before we go on to disinformation, because it's a good one, it, some of that, especially the, the, the errant unaccounted for data, I, I, think, I think one reason possibly that, that sometimes um, the, 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 the lay thinking about conspiracy theories might go against some of the academic, or certainly some of your academic thinking, is that uh, fiction conditions people to think otherwise sometimes. Uh, talking about stuff makes me think of the likes of Sherlock Holmes, where you'll have, where Sherlock Holmes, you know, especially in the, the more recent, the, the Stephen Moffat ones, has yeah, his superpower is that he sees it all, all the data out in front of him and he's able to pick out these things that everyone else thinks are completely uh, irrelevant bits of data, but he can see that this little one thingy here is the salient thing, and by noticing that one special thing, he's able to show that the, you know, what the, the, the police's theory at the time is complete nonsense and that his theory is the only one that makes sense, which is how it often works in fiction. And I think how people sometimes think it works in real life, but it seems to be not so much the case in reality. No, no. I mean, yes, we do tend to think, I mean, oh, yeah, <clears throat> crime fiction in particular often revolves around finding the one contradiction in someone's story and then going, ah, so that does prove you were at the cafe at 11 o'clock last night and thus you must have committed the murder. I mean, basically all of Columbo is basically Columbo badgering the person he knows committed the crime to say the one thing which is a contradiction to the previous story, which then allows Columbo to basically unravel the, mm. the messy knot that this person's created to try and cover up the fact that they killed Mrs. Hitchings with a candlestick in the jacuzzi. Mm. I don't think it ever happened on Columbo, but... And yeah, you want a principle that explains this. Now, as you point out, there's a worry here that conspiracy theories might be more prone to using errant data because that's in the way they get presented. But you have to also be aware that official theories like the invasion of Iraq to find those weapons of mass destruction also can feature errant data of this particular type. So it's not a feature which is unique to conspiracy theories in the pejorative sense, because we both agree that the official theory about the invasion of Iraq in 2003 is itself a conspiracy theory, but people take it that errant data is a feature of the pejoratively class conspiracy theories. Actually, errant data is to be found in all kinds of explanations, and there's no reason to think conspiracy theories suffer from this especially. Mm. But now, you mentioned disinformation before, and that's quite a, it's quite a special case when it comes to evidence, isn't it? Given that it's not, well, 
stuff that's presented as, as evidence, but which by its nature is not really. Yeah, dis disinformation was last century's fake news, because mm. fake news is the big thing everyone talks about. Yeah. Now disinformation was the big thing people talked about in the 20th century, in part because we got the name in the 20th century from the Russians. From the Russians, so yeah. Disinformatia was a term that was generated by the USSR as a response to the Moscow show trials in the 1930s, so it's actually quite interesting that the name is relatively recent, even though the actual phenomenon is actually quite old. And disinformation is the activity of presenting fabricated or manipulated information to make some explanation look warranted according to the evidence when it might not be. So basically, you put in information, which may be evidence, actually maybe things that occurred, or it may be fabricated or manipulated information to try and make your particular claim look like it's the kind of thing that people ought to believe. Mm. I think there's also the worry these days that um, there, there, there's a bigger project to the likes of disinformation and claims of fake news, which is to simply undermine the notion of truth whatsoever to make it so that people completely give up trying to work out what's true evidence and what's disinformation and therefore at that stage you can kind of say whatever you want and people just believe along tribal lines or what have you. But that's yes, another I mean, issue. There, yeah. yeah, I mean there is a, a, a sociological theory there which is basically going, well, one way you might want to get the public to only trust what you say would be to make expertise basically disappear as a trusted class of information. What better way than claiming that experts are in fact producing fake news or disinformation, and thus they can't be trusted, which then means that people who buy that particular line are going to be more likely to believe what you say as their trusted source. I think the problem. this is not a new issue mm. in any way, shape or form, as long as the recorded history has existed. People have been talking about how everyone lives in a post-truth age now, because people have been aware that expertise is the kind of thing that can be quite easily perverted by people in positions of power. But it also doesn't help that in the USSR you had a series of government agencies that went out of their way to make fake news to make people think things were better than they were, and it doesn't help that as of the time of recording, with Donald Trump being the President of the United States, you also have someone who delights in making up conspiracy theories or claiming that his opponents are engaging in the production of fake news for the sheer fact that people say things that Trump just doesn't want to hear. Mm. But anyway, disinformation as it relates to conspiracy theories then. So one of the worries about disinformation is that disinformation is often a claim in many conspiracy theories that if there is a conspiracy going on, people will be producing disinformation to make it look as if there isn't a conspiracy going on. So the best way to make a conspiracy theory look unwarranted would be to fabricate information which either tars the conspiracy theorist as being irrational or to present an alternative view that goes the conspiracy theorists are simply mistaken about the likelihood a conspiracy is occurring there. And as people point out, if you make a claim about disinformation in a conspiracy theory, the conspiracy theorist is basically rendering their conspiracy theories being unfalsifiable by going, well, you may have heard 
that X isn't happening, but that's disinformation being put out by the state which prove X is happening. Now, of course, if there really is a conspiracy going on, you can actually expect that people in positions of power will be producing disinformation to try and cover up the fact there is a conspiracy going on. In the 2003 case, the US and the UK were going, well, yes, you may have heard from UN we 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 weapons inspectors that there are, you know, there are no centrifuges making X or Y in Iraq. But, you know, we have anonymous sources in the CIA with agents on the ground who say they've definitely seen those chemical weapons producing factories. So, you know, you can, you can believe us. And that was a lie. They were putting forward fabricated information to support basically a political decision to invade Iraq at that particular point in time. And people who were putting forward conspiracy theories about the US and the UK's stated rationale were saying they're going to make these claims, but they're actually false, which goes to show they are conspiring to cover up the real reason for the invasion. It reminds me of the whole <clears throat> the thing you see in some conspiracy theories where the lack of evidence is taken as evidence. Where, where you know, we, we can't find any evidence for this. Well, that just proves they're covering it up, sort of going in the other direction. Yes. Now, it is true that disinformation is problematic, but if there really is evidence of a conspiracy out there, then predicting disinformation is not actually an irrational claim. And this is the point that Brian makes when in Of Conspiracy Theories. Claims about the falsifiability of hypotheses. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to make a claim here I don't agree with, but generally are taken to be good rationales for thinking that a scientific hypothesis is bad. Uh, the reason why I say I don't disagree with it is that falsificationism was a really nice criteria for distinguishing good science from bad science in the 60s. It's been 60 years now since Popper wrote about falsificationism. There's been a lot of criticism of falsificationism as a thesis for demarcating good science from bad science. The general consensus is falsificationism doesn't work as a way of demarcating between good science and bad science at all. But it is also true it's a fairly useful metric for going whether a theory is supported by evidence or, or not. But it's also the case that when we start talking about conspiracy theories, we're talking about complex social phenomena made up of people who have intentional states and the ability to lie about what they're doing, unlike, say, scientific theories about the position of an electron inside an atom. Electrons don't lie about their position. Human beings lie about what they're doing all the time. Mm. So there's a reason to think that actually disinformation is the kind of thing which is predictable in social phenomena because people will actually lie about what they're up to to save face. Mm. Okay, so next to the notes we have something about fortuitous versus fortunate data. Does this directly relate to disinformation, or is it just one of a species of information, uh, evidence that can be problematic, mathematic like disinformation? There's one of these things where, in the book, The Philosophy of Conspiracy Theories, I put fortunate versus fortuitous data outside the realm of disinformation, and I keep on vacillating as to whether I think it's a form of disinformation or not. So, fortuitous data comes from the work of Buting and Taylor, which is actually where we get the terminology of generalism and particularism from, but their main discussion was on a species of data 
which is used by conspiracy theories to show that a conspiracy theory is likely, which they take it to be information which is so lucky that it can't be a coincidence. So their claim is the passport that was found after the destruction of the Twin Towers that showed that one of the terrorists was on board the flight is information which is so lucky that it's kind of fortuitous it survived and thus it was disinformation put into the public record by the US government to try and bolster up support for the official narrative the planes were piloted by terrorists when they flew into the Twin Towers. I it's so lucky, it's actually kind of suspiciously lucky that it supports a particular hypothesis. And Buting and Taylor basically then run an analysis on fortuitous data going, well, this is the kind of data which we need to be attentive to, although they are actually somewhat suspicious that we should actually be using data of this particular kind to support conspiracy theories generally. Now, my issue with the fortuitous data analysis here is that, yes, it is suspicious the passport survived. So there is something weird about the passport surviving. Of all the things you would find after the planes crash into WTC1 and WTC2, it's unusual you find this particular one passport. It's so so lucky, it is slightly suspicious. But the problem is, lucky things happen all the time. People are just really, really bad at stats, probability, or understanding how physics work. Yeah. So it is true that it's lucky it survived, but it's hard to distinguish that between it being fortuitous or simply just being fortunate. Yes, it's, I mean, if the odds of something... It's just lucky. If the odds of something happening to a person are a million to one, that's a lot, but there are nearly seven billion people on the planet, so Which that's Which means like, it's actually happening all the time. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, you can't make a claim about something being fortuitous or fortunate without already having made an assumption about what's going on in that particular case. So the problem with fortuitous data is that it assumes the existence of a conspiracy to make something count as being fortuitous, whilst actually you might go, well, it's just fortunate. I mean, you don't have to believe in a conspiracy to believe that the passport survived. Sometimes passports do survive plane crashes. Mm. Okay, well then, moving on then to secret evidence. Now this, I mean, secrecy, as we've said in the previous episodes, is, is baked into the notion of conspiracy and is a large part, perhaps, of why people are, tend to be suspicious of claims of, uh, or suspicious of secretive activities and make up conspiracy theories around them, for one thing. But um, when it comes to talking about them, you can have, now, when we say secret evidence, do we mean people claiming to have evidence, but it's secret so they can't tell you? Is that is that what this yes. is about, or is yeah. it, yeah. yeah. Um, which, yeah, that, that brings in a notion of just take my word for it, which is a difficult sort of thing to reconcile with wanting hard evidence. Yeah, and the problem is secrecy is sometimes justified given particular things you want to do. So... And the example I use all the time, if you're negotiating a, a trade deal with a foreign nation, you want to keep your negotiation secret. Because if you publicly talk about what you're up to and what you're willing to trade away versus what your hard lines are, then the opposing power you're in a trade deal with 
if you make that public, you're going to be, oh, so they, they will give up this thing and they won't give up that thing. Well, we can play hardball in this particular thing and get the deal that we want. So you want to keep your negotiations secret so that basically people are on a level playing field when it comes to trades against particular desiderata or consider considerations. So there is always going to be a role for secrecy in particular types of activities. But when you get things like the invasion of Iraq in 2003, where the only evidence being put forward to, well, we've got evidence that Saddam Hussein is producing weapons of mass destruction, but no, you can't see it. Just take our word for it. That's, that's kind of suspicious. Mm. And that's where you start getting into what you might think to be patterns of bad behavior. If you're using secret evidence all the time to justify military actions overseas, uh, pogroms against your political opponents and the like, you might go, that pattern of secret evidence seems to suggest that they're just trying to get away with things that they can't really support themselves. And the important thing here is that secret evidence tends to emanate from governments. There are some conspiracy theories that will go, well, you know, we've got an anonymous source here, like Q, who is telling us about what's really happening in the White House. But actually, secret evidence is also used by governments an awful lot to justify their actions with regard to political scandals, military invasions, and the like. And so is found to be problematic in all aspects of life, conspiracy theory or otherwise. And yet we seem to be more concerned about secret evidence when it comes to fisking conspiracy theories than we are when it comes to secret evidence being used to bolster official theories which oppose particular conspiracy theories. Mm. Yeah, as you say, there's the element of trust in there. And I wonder how much of that is sort of cultural. At the moment, there's much more distrust, I think, of governments than there used to be. And we've talked in, uh, actually, it was a, a bonus Patreon episode, wasn't it, about the situation in Romania and how in, in, Central, Europe, in Central Europe, people had much less trust of the government due to history. Um, so yeah, there's probably the, the, what what you can get away with in terms of secret evidence probably differs according to yeah, uh, community. Yeah. yeah, which unfortunately is not the sort of thing that people like to hear when they want to hear. You know, this is good, this is bad, this is proof, this is not proof. Well, unfortunately, things it's, it's, it's a all lot relative. Messier. Speaking of messy, toxic truths. So this is a notion that's put forward by a friend of the show and also once again friendly. Basham in numerous places now. This is a pattern of behavior of evidence of a conspiracy that no one will touch or disseminate because of the feared negative consequences. So this is in reference to the Britney Spears song Toxic, I assume? Yes, I believe that was Lee's inspiration, was right. Britney Spears Toxic. Now that's got Martin Henderson. Does have Martin Henderson in the music video, who was in the movie Talk, which I think is good, and a lot of other people don't. See, I've tried watching Talk, and I couldn't get through the first fifteen minutes. It's you just have to go with it. It's it doesn't. It's it's ridiculously silly. But if you allow yourself, at one point, Jamie Presley and the female lead have a fight with motorbikes. Not they fight while on motorbikes, they fight while on motorbikes with the motorbikes. 
they like they like pop wheelies and zoom at each other and like bash each other with with the front wheel of their motorbike. And that's the thing that's, that happens in that's this film. The, and that's from the director of Detention, so yeah. I probably should give it a, really another should. go because Detention is one of my favourite films. Mm, yes, no, you definitely should. So yeah, so, so Lee's prime example of this is the Atomic en 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 Energy Commission, who for a very long period of time either denied that radiation was as bad as it appears to be, or covered up radiation fallout patterns in the US because there were tragic consequences for reporting that information. So this claims that sometimes there is evidence which is so toxic that people don't want to talk about it. So they are deliberately covering up information because of the feared social consequence of that information coming out. Now, I think there is something to toxicity as a concept. Ah, so now we're talking about system of a down. See, I, I was with you with the Britney Spears thing, but I don't actually know System of you a Down. You don't know toxicity. That's one of the no. biggest hits. But I also think it's hard to distinguish between something being toxic and something being politely covered up, which is to say that there are two ways of talking about this. There's the top-down kind of cover-up where members of an institution know that if they reveal something, there's going to be public backlash, which is why they keep it secret. But you also get the bottom-up form, which is what I call politeness. And the example I use is, it was fairly common knowledge in the 60s and 70s that the police would arrest people and manufacture evidence to get convictions. And it was a well-accepted process in the system because they were criminals. They probably deserved it. I mean, if they have to manufacture some if, if evidence to get these crims off the streets, well, you know, they probably deserve it. We all politely went along with it, even though ostensibly we knew that it was police corruption of a kind, but it was the kind of corruption we all agreed with. And then you got a culture change where people went, yeah, so sometimes they arrest people who haven't committed crimes and they put them in prison with their manufactured evidence. And that happened to my uncle. And now suddenly I'm against the system, which I've been politely ignoring for quite some time. And so it's hard to distinguish in many cases between whether something is toxic from a top-down perspective or simply something which is politely covered up by the population going, well, we know it goes on, but we're just not going to question it because, you know be really awkward to bring that up. It's much easier to be polite about these things. Mm. There's, we've talked, I can't remember if it was in a real episode, or a real episode, a main episode or a bonus episode, um, about the porn industry, which seems, it seems a weird mixture of the two, in that in America there's one company which basically has a monopoly in the production of pornographic movies, uh, and also the and also the websites which host them. So the fact that 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 porn gets pirated and stuck up on these websites doesn't actually harm the company because they also own the websites that they get pirated onto. Yeah, and they I make think, all the I ad think revenue. Pornhub is is owned by one of the production yeah. companies. So, but apparently they all are, which gives you a monopoly situation, which is very bad for the workers in the industry, not just the actual actors, but anyone who works in the industry. Uh, but it'll never get addressed, because for it to get addressed, a, pro a politician is going to basically have to stake their career on standing up and saying, we need to do something about porn, and that politician will be known as the porn politician from now until the end of days. Um, so it's not quite... It's 
It's certainly not something being imposed from up top. It's kind of... But, 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 but it is a big corporation that's benefiting from it. It seems like a, an interesting example. Everyone knows what the issue Everybody is, but knows no it's one's true. Really, yeah. Although yeah. I'm thinking if anyone's going to, it should be Ron Paul, because then you could just go Ron Paul. Yes, or Ron Jeremy Paul. Actually, if Ron Jeremy ever runs for Congress or Senate, he'd be willing to, he might. to whip yeah. it out. Yep. Maybe we could get, I think Stormy Daniels might be the closest we have. Maybe get her to give some sort of PSA. That's a name we haven't actually heard for quite some time. No, actually, it's, 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 it's just the, a, the whole Trump scandal thing yeah. just has got so much bigger that yeah, Stormy I mean, paying Daniels off a porn star is kind of, kind of small beans, really. Yeah, yeah, as opposed to high crimes and misdemeanors. Mm. But anyway, moral of the story. What is the moral of the story when it comes to evidence and conspiracy Well, theories? according to the notes, the moral of the story is the kind of evidence routinely said to be problematic when used in support of conspiracy theories end up being the kind of evidence we routinely, routinely use to show conspiracy theories are bad. There is a curious double standard here. And I stand by my words. Good. So yeah, so basically when you think about it, secret evidence, toxicity, disinformation, fortuitous versus fortunate data, disinformation, and the like, are all used both by conspiracy theories and they get pinged for using them. But they also get used by official theories, I put scare quotes around that, to show that conspiracy theories are bad. And if we're going to say this kind of evidence is prima facie bad no matter what, then we have to admit that actually we use problematic forms of evidence to dismiss conspiracy th theories all the time as well. Mm. Well, there you go. Indeed, we went. So I guess that, that, that then further uh, is, is fully consistent, I guess, with the... Uh, project of this podcast and possibly your academic work to rehabilitate slightly the notion of conspiracy theory and Indeed say that a majority of reading of yep. them is not always justified. Mm. And those are wise words, and frankly, thank you for saying them. Yes, well. So I think that brings us to the end of this little episode. We can stick it in the can. We can. We need a new sting. We need another sting. We need a from the can from sting. The can. Episode from the can. Episode from the can. Mm. Can, can, can. Can't, can't, can. Mm. Can, can't, can't, can? Cancun. That's actually, I was thinking exactly mm. exact that. Now, normally we end with a promise as to what's going to be going on in the bonus episode for patrons, but of course, this is a in the can mm. episode, so we don't know no. what patrons... The last time, the last time we took an episode out of the can, the bonus episode that followed it was a recording taken during a car journey that didn't come out perfectly, it has to be said, but it was a nice change of pace. So you're saying we have to do planes, trains, and automobiles. Quite possibly. Record the next Patreon bonus episode on a train. We could do that. There are trains in Auckland. Yeah. Mm. That could be very interesting. Could be. Could also be very annoying mm. for the other people. For the other people on the train, yeah. 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 Oh well, who knows? Who knows? For now, all we know is that it's time to end this episode. Uh stay tuned, patrons, for something. And either way, we'll all talk to you next week. Buena vista, my good friends. Goodbye. You've been listening to the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, hosted by Josh Addison and M. Dentith. If you'd like to help support us, please find details of our pledge drive at either Patreon or Podbean. If you'd like to get in contact with us, email us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com.
And that's a TV production company. <laughs> yep.